you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. As uh, we are in the second week of really a New Year's challenge. Last week, Chris challenged us about discipleship. I'm on today, and next week we're going to have a treat. We're going to have a couple of elders from each of the services uh, teach us about uh, their perspective about the New Year's uh, challenge. Poe Gallon, a legendary Kansas basketball coach, once said that if the mailman stopped for every barking dog, he would never finish his route. And I've been thinking about that a lot. I was reading this uh, just a couple months back in the Sports Illustrated as they were doing a preview of all the college basketball teams. Now, he used the term barking dogs to uh, uh, relate to criticism that he would encounter as a coach. And this morning, what I'd like to do is use the, the phrase barking dogs not only to talk about the criticism that you and I encounter when, when spiritual warfare breaks out, when the uh, adversary attacks us, as he did many of you in 1996. Uh, but I also want to use that term uh, to define any kind of spiritual warfare that, that hits us. And, and by that I mean that there are, are outward uh, as well as internal barking dogs. The outward ones are, are so prominent these days and they, they jump out at you in a way that you, you can't help but, but not recognize them. Uh, last week, uh, I ran into a, a friend who told me that uh, two weeks prior to Christmas, her husband announced that uh, he was walking out on the marriage. Another kind of barking dog might be that that sore spot on your arm, your do- doctor diagnoses it as cancer. Uh, but the internal ones sometimes uh, we don't see, do we, in each other. It might be a particular sin that continues to master you or I. And, and we haven't felt the the comfort level or the freedom to go to some of our best friends and share that with them, that we might get help. Another internal uh, barking dog, I had a friend three weeks before Christmas that had the courage to go to his wife and to go to a few close friends and, and admit that he was a drunk, that his alcohol consumption had gotten so bad that he realized that he was putting not only himself but his family in peril. Well, we're not alone. There are barking dogs, uh, both externally and internally, uh, in this fellowship. If you think, because in 1996 you didn't encounter many of those, don't be naive because they are waiting in those dark alleyways to jump out and bite you. Matter of fact, I, I couldn't help but uh, make a copy of this Charlie Brown, this Peanuts uh, cartoon, because even Elijah had barking dogs. And Elijah fled into the wilderness and sat under a broom tree and said, I am no better than my father's. And Charlie Brown says, he was really depressed. Snoopy, a wire-haired fox terrier could have cheered him up. You know, folks, every once in a while we need some cheering up, don't we? Uh, 96 was a pretty good year for the Dixon family. But I'll tell you what, I've got brothers and sisters in here, and you know, you do too, that got chewed up this past year. Life was difficult. We use the phrase rather loosely that uh, sometimes uh, 96 was like hell. Well, let me tell you, folks, for some of these people that I'm thinking of, it was very, very difficult. The reason we need cheering up is because we can tend to lose hope when those barking dogs greet us in those dark alleys. It can create the kind of fear that can stop us in our tracks, just as it did Elijah, just as it can do to us if we're not careful. This morning I want to look at Matthew 16 because I think there's four principles. Go ahead, Deb. Four principles that help us 
in a sense, get cheered up, but also to learn how to deal with barking dogs in our lives. First of all, in verses 15 through 17, we're going to see, really, really, Peter helps us see this, and that is he identifies the resource in which you and I need to deal with these barking dogs. Secondly, in verses 18 through 19, our Lord Jesus himself identifies the foundation, foundation, the foundation on which uh, we as a fellowship of believers, that is the church, is built. That it's a firm foundation, it's rock solid. And not even the gates of hell can prevail against us. The third one is that the, uh, uh, our Lord uh, identifies a rather subtle barking dog. As I mentioned earlier, the outward barking dogs are, are pretty easy to, to diagnose. Aren't they? They're pretty easy to see. But sometimes there's some, some hidden ones in our lives that we need help. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Then the last one, the fourth one, is identifying the how-tos of discipleship because discipleship is the key. And Chris Riddell, last week, if you were here, he challenged us in the new year that we have got to, to center on becoming disciples, making disciples. And then, of course, uh, uh, that's the how-to, how to deal with these barking dogs in 1997. Now, if you were here uh, for our Christmas Eve service, we had a delightful time, and we just barely touched on this passage in Matthew 16. And if you will recall, uh, our Lord, along with the disciples, had uh, gone into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and there he asked them a very important question. Uh, if you recall, our Lord at this point in, in his uh, historic life had probably spent over a year with the disciples. So the question he asked is who do people say that I am? A very fair question. After spending that amount of time with the disciples, now he wants to know what do people really think of me? What is the common opinion of who I am? And so in verse 14, they, they reply and they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the, the great prophets. But then uh, Peter, I mean our Lord goes on to ask the question that each one of us need to respond to. But what about you, he said. Uh, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, that is, not by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. He said, never, Lord, may this never happen to you. And Jesus turned to him and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Why? Well, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Let's stop right there for a moment. The first principle that, that really is disclosed in this passage is really 
out of the lips of Peter. And that is, Peter identifies the resource that both he and the other apostles and every one of us in this room and everyone in the world needs to identify, and that is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He is the, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. But uh, the response that uh, the apostles gave our Lord about what other people think of him, their common reply was he, he was just a great man, a great teacher, a prophet, a priest, but nonetheless, just a man. But Peter was different, wasn't he? Peter identified something that the other people hadn't recognized at that point, maybe not even all of the apostles up to this time. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter recognized our Lord and Savior's deity, that Jesus was God in the flesh, inseparable. And our Lord's response is, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but it was a divine revelatory act of the Father. And so what our Lord tells Peter is the only way that you or I, anybody in the world for that matter, can come to that knowledge, to come to that recognition, is through this act of God. So the first step, really, in overcoming the spiritual dogs that are going to be nipping at your heels this coming year is to recognize Christ as your Savior. Paul tells us in Romans 10.10 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved because it's with your heart that you believe and it's with your tongue that you confess and Paul goes on to tell us that whoever puts our faith in Christ will never be put to shame. Well, that's the challenge for us this morning. That's the challenge for us as we enter into 1997. A couple of weeks back, they gave the Heisman Trophy Award, and that goes to the most valuable player in college football. And typically, I don't sit down and watch Heisman Trophy Awards. They don't exactly interest me enough. I can read it the next day in the paper. But this year was different because Jake Plummer... Uh, one of our local uh, Idaho boys was in contention for that award. So a few of us went down uh, to the Ram Pub because they had the ESPN and we wanted to, to listen to this uh, Heisman Trophy Award. And uh, the winner of that award was given to the University of Florida, uh, Danny Werfel. Of course, at first I was a little bit discouraged because he wasn't one of our boys, but then as I listened to uh, Mr. Werfel's um, acceptance speech, I was just thrilled to death. Uh, Danny started out by, by really saying this trophy wasn't just for him, but it really was a team trophy because if it wasn't for his offensive line, if it wasn't for his defense and special teams, if it wasn't for his coaches, uh, he wouldn't be there. So he said, I, I really accept this award on behalf of all of my team. Then he went on to praise the coaches for the job that they did, how they encouraged him, how they prepared him for that task as quarterback. And then finally he came to his parents and uh, really blessed them because of the job they had done in, in rearing him. When he got all done, he said, you know, this Heisman Trophy Award is, is a tremendous blessing. The coaches have been a great blessing, my teammates. He says, I have received many blessings in my life, but I want to tell you that the greatest blessing that I've ever received is a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. He said that on national TV, folks. 
Danny Werfel, this 21, 22-year-old college student, hit the nail on the head because he, he understood, like Peter, and he professed it with his mouth, with his lips, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the rock in which he stands. Not football, although he loves it. Not the Heisman Trophy Award. You know, I know we have visitors here this morning. And I know we have folks that have been around Cole for years. And the challenge to us as we enter this new year is to do like Peter did. To do like Danny Werfel has done. And like many of us in here have done. And that is to profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Don't keep putting it off. Some of our, our, our senior citizens here, maybe you've been coming for years and you have yet to do that. Do not put that off. And the challenge goes to some of you young people that are in here. Don't let another day go by and start out in 1997 because I guarantee you those barking dogs will come after you and you need the resource of Jesus Christ as your Messiah and as your Redeemer. Well, let's look at the second principle. And that is that uh, our Lord then in verses 18 through 19, He identifies the foundation on which the fellowship of believers, that's you and I, the church is built. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a firm foundation. It's rock solid. And plus He gives us a promise that not even the gates of hell, He says in verse 18, will prevail against it or overcome it. Now before I talk about what this phrase, gates of hell, means, I just want to make a a brief comment about what it means to be a disciple in, in the fellowship in the body of Christ. You see, becoming a, a follower of Christ doesn't guarantee that you and I are going to win the Heisman trophies of life. It doesn't guarantee if your marriage is in trouble, folks, that, that God's going to save it. It doesn't guarantee that if you are struggling with cancer, like our dear brother John Kaywood did just about three weeks ago when he lost that battle of cancer, that God is going to cure you. Becoming a follower does not eliminate the heartaches of life. But unfortunately, in our culture, it teaches us that God, somehow, in America in any way, is a God of my comfort. That He is going to take away all of the displeasures of life, which is not biblical. In the book, The Trivialization of God, uh, Donald McCullough says this about this idea of God being the God of my comfort. He says the tendency to psychologize life has changed our view of ministry. Although the gospel calls for self-surrender in faith and obedience, an obedience that leads to a cross, we now seek to reach the unchurched by meeting their felt needs. He goes on to say that Christian ministry has become an effort to help people cope with their problems uh, well enough to find a bit of happiness. Now, God isn't ignored in all this, he says, of course, but... God is brought in to help, rather like a great therapist consulted to ameliorate life's problems. In other words, to uh, make better or to tolerate life's problems, difficulties. Psychologist Kim Hall says that people walk into her office and say they are Christians, but she says, I see no difference except that they want to be happy and now they expect God to make it so. This past week, uh, we celebrated uh, the New Year's over at John and Mimi, Mimi Barnes's place, and we watched the ASU-Arizona State game against Ohio, and of course, we were cheering for Arizona State. And in the, the final three minutes of that game, Arizona State was behind, 
And Jake Plummer made this fantastic, phenomenal slip through an 11-yard dive. Well, he didn't dive 11 yards, but he ran and then dove into the end zone, scoring a touchdown, putting Arizona State three points ahead with about a minute and 30 seconds left. Man, we were up out of our seats, and we were high-fiving each other and cheering everybody on. Then we all kind of settled back into our seats, and it got quiet, and Mimi says, I've got an idea. Why don't we turn the TV off right now? (laughs) Hello. You should have seen the expression on the guy's faces. What? I think it was Pete that said, Mom, be quiet. He says, no, let's, let's turn the TV off because don't we all like to feel good? Don't we like to be happy? Really, a, a sense of profundity in those words, wasn't there? Now, I know, Mimi, you were just kidding, right, Mimi? Yeah. But see, that's the way we treat life oftentimes. Now, we should have turned the TV off, shouldn't we? Those of you that watch that game know what happened. See, in a minute and 30 seconds, Ohio came, marched right down the field and scored, and I was bummed out the rest of New Year's Day. I'll tell you. <laughs> you see, our culture has taught us that we have somehow this inalienable right to be happy. Even well-intended Bible teachers uh, take the scriptures and they teach us that God wants to deliver us from all discomfort. That's nonsense. It's not biblical. One author put it this way. He says, The highest form of love sometimes wills the suffering of the beloved if suffering is what the beloved needs. You and I need to be careful because any God out there that promises to fulfill all of our desires is really disguised as the devil himself. But God does give us a wonderful promise here in this passage. He says that, As believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church, he says, not even the gates of hell will overcome you and I. And we've been hit hard. We've been racked hard in this last couple of years in this fellowship. Uh, Marriages disintegrating. Rebellious children. Rebellious husbands. And it's taken its toll, hasn't it? But Jesus promised to Peter and these these, uh, apostles is... Uh, hell will never overtake. You know, what did he have in mind there? Uh, what's behind this term, these, the, the gates of hell? Well, well in, ancient, in the ancient East, the gate uh, was always a place where the elders and rulers gathered to discern any kind of, or dispense any kind of counsel or, or judgment. Listen to what uh, Deuteronomy twenty-one nineteen says. It gives us a picture of what the gate was used for. It says, If a man has a rebellious and disobedient son, he must bring him to the elders of the city and to the gate of his place, that is, the gate of this rebellious son. So they would bring this son to the gate in his village, in his town, and there the elders would dispense what was right or wrong that he had done and present that person with judgment. Now today, the gate in our culture would be synonymous with, uh, let's say, city hall, a governing judicial court. So if we could paraphrase this verse, what we might say is something like this. All the powers, all the governments of hell will never overcome, take over, rule over the church. You see the uh, encouragement in these words, in this promise? Oh, we may lose a game uh, in football. We may lose some skirmishes, a battle here, a battle there. But as we sing, quite often, the battle belongs to the Lord. He is ultimately the victor.
it is his. And notice what, what verse 18b says. That Jesus is the one building the church. See, it's not the elders. It's not Chris Rudell, our senior pastor. It's not none of the associate pastors. But it's Jesus who builds the church. Now, now let me just make a, a couple of quick comments on verses 18 and 19. Because volumes have been written about just these two verses. We could preach and teach on this for, for weeks. Notice what Jesus says. He says, And I tell you in verse 18 that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. What did our Lord have in mind here? Well, there's several possibilities. Uh, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he thought that the phrase on this rock referred to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And because it was that expression of faith that's how the church is built. Now, that's accurate, isn't it? That's true. Uh, but I don't think that's what our Lord had in mind. Others believe that when our Lord uses the phrase, on this rock, he was saying, Peter, you, uh, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock, then it's like the Lord pointed to himself, this is how I'm going to build my church, on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't say that here, does it? Sounds good. And it's true that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is really the firm foundation. The church is built on God alone, not on any man, not on any apostle. So what what does our Lord have in mind? Well, I think the simplest and the best explanation or interpretation of this is that our Lord is using a play on words here. He says, uh, uh, you are Peter. Now, what did Peter's name mean? Stone, rock. And on you, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Well, here's what I think is going on. Jesus, or Peter, when he expressed faith in, in Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God, what did he become? He became the first New Testament believer. He became the first one that was going to be a part of this New Testament church. And Jesus was going to use Peter, and eventually we read that he's going to use all the apostles to really build his church. But Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And he's just building his church one stone upon another stone on another rock. And Peter just happened to be the first of many equals in comparison to the other apostles. Then in 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. What exactly did the Lord have in mind here? Well, the keys of a royal or a noble establishment were entrusted to a chief steward. And he would take those keys and they'd be placed over his shoulder on a ring. And that gave this man authority uh, that was entrusted to him. About 700 years before Christ was born, an oracle of God was given out of Isaiah uh, concerning the royal palace of Jerusalem. And who it was was going to be conferred these keys that would have authority in the palace. It was actually uh, to Eliakim. But listen to what Isaiah 22 tells us that helps describe what these keys represent. I will place on his shoulder, that's that picture again, of the keys on his shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. So keys symbolize the authority that Jesus gave Peter and eventually the rest of the apostles. Now what kind of authority? Well, that's where these terms to bind and to loose help us. Bind and the loosing were uh, idiomatic expressions used by the rabbis of Jesus' day. Very well known and well-used phrases. To bind something was to declare it forbidden, uh, to prohibit it from taking place. To loose something was to declare it permitted. 
It was allowed. Uh, the rabbis would gather together and they would bind something because it was not prohibited or they would loose it. And so I think what our Lord is saying here is he's giving Peter and the other apostles, the, other apostles, the authority uh, to write the scriptures, to teach and preach the scriptures, to discipline and to legislate in the early New Testament church growth period uh, both things that were appropriate and things that weren't appropriate, to permit certain things and to forbid others. But I don't want us to lose sight of the bottom line truth here, and that is that Jesus is the one who's building the church. And it's Jesus is the one who, one stone, one rock at a time, using Peter and the others, using people like ourselves, and he's laying it on a very firm, rock-solid foundation. And not even the gates of hell will prevail. Well, let's look third at, at, at uh, next at our third principle, and that is, how do we identify barking dogs? And our Lord, uh, notice in verses 21, he uh, tells the disciples that from this time on, the Son of Man has to suffer many things uh, at the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Basically, he was uh, identifying the crucifixion with himself, wasn't he? And notice what Peter does. Peter pulls him aside and he rebukes him. He says, may it never be. This will never happen to you. Now, it's interesting that, that uh, one minute our Lord is praising Peter, isn't he? He's saying, blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, because of how Peter identified Jesus as the true Messiah. But in the next moment, our Lord is telling Peter, now, get behind me, Satan. Well, what, what's going on here? Well, the rock that Jesus had... Uh, earlier declared Peter to be, had now become a stumbling rock or a stumbling block, if you will. Matter of fact, the word that our Lord uses here is the word scandalon, which we get our English word scandalous from. Now, I'm convinced that, that Peter was not scandalous in his attempt to uh, keep our Lord and Master from harm's way here. Uh, but what our Lord does is he reminds Peter that anything that does not have in mind, notice verse uh, 23b says, uh, whatever, uh, anything that does not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men can become a stumbling block. In other words, they can create scandal. They can be barking dogs that prevent us from going the direction, going the will of God that he has prescribed for us. You see, uh, Peter's response is such a human response that we all have from time to time. And that is we want to rescue somebody out of their situation and to keep them from having to suffer. Peter had a different view of the, of the Messianic kingdom than what our Lord did. Peter's way that it was going to shape, draw shape and, and come about was so different than, than what our Lord had planned. And that's why our Lord tells us that sometimes... Uh, we enter into people's lives wanting to help them, but do we have the things of God in mind or do we have the things of men in mind? Folks, 1997 is going to mistreat you. Life has a way of doing that. People that you love are going to hurt you. And if you and I approach these barking dogs like Peter did, that it's not fair, it's not right, this shouldn't happen to you, and we're going to have more of the things of men in mind than the things of God. For example, if you have a friend that's suffering due to a difficult marriage, maybe the loss of a marriage, a loss of a dream, a loss of a job, a loss of good health, whatever, 
It's so easy. The human tendency is to come alongside and rescue that person out of it when quite possibly what God really wants for that person, just as he had for Jesus Christ, was to carry out his will. Now, the Son of Man had to, to suffer. He had to die on the cross for your sins and my sins. We wouldn't be here this morning if that weren't the case. And thank goodness that, that Jesus didn't listen to Peter. The same is true for us. When we come alongside of our friends, well, we still need to encourage, don't we? As our Lord said, we need to, to weep with those who weep. So we need to encourage, and we need to maybe even help them identify what the barking dog is so that they can grow through it. But I don't think we're called to eliminate or remove barking dogs from our lives. God can take care of us in those dark times. Then the last and the fourth principle is found in verses 24 to 26. We have uh, studied at length in the past about what it means to be a disciple. But our Lord here identifies what discipleship looked like. And when we apply this principle to our lives, then we can encounter and stand firm against these, these barking dogs. Our Lord says that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what discipleship looks like. We profess Jesus as the Messiah, as Peter did. Then we begin to deny ourselves. And we take up our cross, which I believe means commitment. You may or may not suffer, but I believe he's talking about commitment here. And then we follow him. You see, if, if I don't deny myself, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to try to eliminate and, and wrangle my way out of the difficult things that will happen to me. If I don't commit my life to Christ, I'm not going to walk down those dark alleys because I know that it's scary. And at the end of that dark alley will be a cross. And if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus and follow Him, we're going to get sidetracked by the things of men instead of concentrating on the things of God. And when those barking dogs rear their ugly heads and bear those vicious white teeth, we will surely run in fear if we do not deny ourselves, commit our lives to Christ, and keep our eyes on Him. Don Pettinger and I were talking about a month ago, and he was reminding me of a, a favorite scene of his in the movie The Untouchables. It was about uh, Kevin Costner who played the part of Elliot Ness, the young FBI agent, and Sean Connery played the part of the the seasoned older uh, uh, policeman. And uh, Sean Connery knew much about Al Capone and all of his methods. And Kevin Costner needed a, a police ally because the, the, the department was so crooked. And so uh, Kevin Costner, Elliot Ness, came to, to Connery and he asked him, would you, would you join me in this effort to put Capone behind bars for good? He, he said, no, I won't do it. And he came back again and asked him again, Finally, Sean Connery said to him, uh, What are you prepared to be? What are you prepared to do? And Ness said, Well, what do you mean? He came back and said, What are you prepared to do? You see, Connery knew that he had to be prepared to risk everything. His family, his own life, the lives of other policemen, if he really was intent on pursuing and capturing this gangster. 
He knew that it would cost Elliot Ness everything. It was a scene in there where apparently Ness gets shot and he says to him again, what are you prepared to do? Folks, that's our challenge for 1997. And maybe we should change it, not what are you prepared to do, but what are we as believers in Jesus Christ prepared to be? I have this dog that lives down the street and around the corner from me. Now, I've identified this dog as a barking dog. Now, granted, he may be a nice enough dog with his own personal family. But when he's out of his yard and I ride my motorcycle or my truck down the street, what do you think he does? He comes after me. He chases me time and time again when he's out of his yard. And he bears those teeth. And his bark is pretty loud. His growl, You know he wants to just eat me alive. Now, when I ride my motorcycle down there, I am petrified. Because my legs are exposed. And this dog is so quick. Matter of fact, he's so quick that one day I thought if I just gave my motorcycle a little bit more gas, I'd zip right by him. This dog jumped in front of me and I went bump, bump, you know, over this dog. And I thought, well, good. Now he'll never come and chase me again. <laughs> but you know what he did about a week later when my son rode his motorcycle down that same street? Came right back and he attacked him again. See, barking dogs are like that. They never give up. Bill, you know that, don't you? They never give up. My brother Bill is going through a lot of heartache right now, like many of you are. But them dogs keep coming. Their enemies are the kingdom of heaven, folks. They want to destroy us. And they've done their best over the last year to do it, but not even the gates of hell will prevail over this fellowship. Is that exciting or what? Let me tell you what I do. I drive my truck down there now because when I'm in... No, I'm not, not to run over them. But, I, but I, I've thought about it, folks. Believe me. But I'm in my truck, and when I drive down that street, you know, I'm protected. I got all this metal around me. I got that big 350 engine sitting right there with all that power. But I'm protected. I'm secure. I'm taken care of. I mean, he can come out growling and barking and snapping those jaws. And, and, and I don't have anything to be afraid of. So I never avoid going down that street when I'm in my truck. Inevitably, 1997 will bring barking dogs of the nature that we have all encountered and described this morning. But because you and I, like Peter, have confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God... Because we are part of that firm foundation built on hard rock, uh, not even the gates of hell will ever overcome us. Continue to lose your life in 97, and God's guarantee is that you will find it. And then like the mailman that Pogue Allen, the coach, spoke of earlier, we can finish the route that God intended for us. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray especially for my brothers and sisters who uh, have gone through a very difficult year. And it seems as if the dogs were relentless. They never would give up. But I thank you for your words that cheer us up, that encourage us, that give us a hope, give us a faith, a, a deep-rooted faith. Lord, uh, I don't ask that you uh, rescue them from 
their suffering, but I ask that as they uh, trust you, they will grow in a deeper dependence upon you. For those of us, Lord, that will have uh, barking dogs in our lives in 97, I I pray that you would prepare us. Help us not be naive to think that we would go through a year without some kind of attack. And then lastly, maybe most importantly, if there are any of you here today that do not have never said that, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, would you not let today go by without doing that? Ask him into your life. He loves you. He forgives you. He wants to direct you. He wants you to finish the route of life without any fear. Do that and then tell somebody about it so we can celebrate with you. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.